Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In March 1997, the Cartoon Network in the U.S. introduced a block of programming unlike anything ever seen before on a kid's channel. From 4 to 7 each weekday, young viewers could plunk themselves in front of the TV with a Dunkaroo and a Sunny D and enjoy three hours of animated action shows from Japan. Stuff like Dragon Ball Z, Gundam Wing, and Sailor Moon. When Toonami put anime on TV in the prime after-school time slot, It was the evolution of a slow, steady climb that saw anime grow from an underground hobby in North America to a massive multi-million dollar industry with all-ages fans, better known as otakus. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're taking you back to a golden age of anime. The 90s anime boom in North America actually began in 1989. That's when the cyberpunk classic Akira landed in the United States at the Biograph Theater in the Georgetown neighborhood of Washington, D.C. Over the next couple of years, the film by Katsuhiro Otomo made its way around the country, playing at art houses and midnight movies, establishing itself as a cult classic along the way. For North Americans, the futuristic morality action epic with stunning visuals took the animated feature to a new level, and it left them wanting more of what Japan had to offer. But it would be a few more years before anime went fully mainstream in North America, making it challenging for fans to find anime, but not impossible. Beginning in the 1980s, viewers could find dubbed anime on VHS if they knew where to look. In addition to that, fans in the English-speaking world or the Francophone world or Italy were also subtitling things themselves with amateur materials, circulating things that were copies of taped-off-the-air videos made on Japanese airwaves. That's Ada Palmer, a historian at the University of Chicago and a science fiction writer with a deep interest in anime. So since I was an undergraduate, I've been making websites about anime and staffing anime conventions, and then I started working as a consultant for anime companies. Like many fans of anime, she started off by reading Japanese comics or graphic novels called manga. So I was raised by a nerdy dad, uh, and so he and I read and shared the same comic books together throughout my childhood uh, and transitioned from X-Men to uh, manga in the mid-1990s. And then I also would go with dad to Blockbuster and we would get whatever they would have on VHS uh, and watch it together. Modern anime had been in Japan since the mid-1950s and first arrived in the U.S. around 1961. But in many cases, the companies that licensed the material in North America would try to make them less Japanese, 
removing Japanese text and changing names and settings, thinking it would be more palatable for an English-speaking audience. In the late 80s, though, things began to change, as the companies that licensed the material realized there was a fandom that liked anime because it was Japanese. And that was a major change from earlier decades to the late 80s and then in the 1990s, where it was firmly, we know this is Japanese and we're excited about it because it's Japanese. In addition to finding anime on VHS, fans could track down some shows on TV as well. That is, if they surfed around the dial long enough. The Sci-Fi Channel, which launched in 1992, was among the first in the 90s to air Japanese anime, beginning with the anthology film Robot Carnival and the cult classic Vampire Hunter D. By 1995, the Sci-Fi Channel introduced the programming block Saturday Anime. We are rocking your world with the hottest craze in entertainment today. It's a Japanese take on animation called anime. I'm the live-action anime girl and your guy. My name is Apollo Smile. I love tonight's movie. That year was a very important year for anime, not just in North America, but in Japan, too. 1995 is the start of the era referred to as the second golden age of anime. Let's begin in Japan, where the first golden age of anime came to an end as the 1980s were drawing to a close. Ada Palmer says that's when both the manga and anime industries were impacted by four separate events, something Ada calls a quadrapocalypse. First, the industries were hit hard by a financial crisis in Japan. Many studios shut down, investments dried up, and production of anime shrunk by two-thirds. Another thing that hits in 1989 is that there was a serial killer case in Japan which became very infamous. And the killer collected on VHS large amounts of video, some of which was anime, a lot of which was horror or live action porn. But the newspapers nicknamed him the otaku killer, otaku being a word for an anime fan. And it created a much nastier stigma around anime fandom. So a lot of people started being uncomfortable going to conventions, not wanting to reveal to people that they were fans. It caused a big constriction in both the fandom and spending. During this time, the creator of Astro Boy, Osamu Tezuka, died unexpectedly. Tezuka, who was a prolific creator of manga and anime for 40 years, was a major leader and funder of animation, especially experimental animation, and his death left a massive void in the industry. And the final part of the Quadrapocalypse relates to the release of Akira, that movie I mentioned earlier that became a cult classic in North America. You see, it didn't do so well in Japan when it was released in July 1988. In fact, it bombed. With a production budget of $5.5 million and an advertising budget of $3.5 million, it was one of the most expensive anime films ever made at the time of its release. And it didn't even come close to breaking even, only earning about $1.5 million. For all of these reasons, the Japanese industry entered a period where studios were only making cheap, safe, and uninspiring anime. That is, until 1994, when things began to turn around. The big reason for that actually being partly that the economy had recovered a little bit, so there was a little more money, but also the artists got desperate. Animators in Japan had the feeling that anime was dying as a field, and they started doing whatever they had to 
to get that extra funding to do something experimental. While that was happening in Japan, another change was underway in North America. Most anime is based on manga. And in the U.S. and Canada, initially, manga was mainly being sold at bookstores, not comic book stores. But then in 1995, the California-based manga publisher Viz Media began a marketing campaign to get manga into comic book stores. With that, Japanese manga found a new audience. And so it was in 1995 that America started getting the source material that the anime was made from and which showed so much more of its Japanese-ness. So it, that began an important, slowly growing, but nonetheless major golden age of you being able to get both the manga and the anime. And that difference helped people understand the anime as Japanese more, you know, look into it, discuss how it was adapted, be excited in advance about shows that were going to come out that hadn't been adapted yet, this kind of thing. Mix this new interest in manga and anime in North America with the latest wave of experimental and high-quality shows and movies in Japan, and you've got the dawn of a golden age of anime that lasts for the rest of the decade. So let's take a look at some of the shows that fans in the U.S. and Canada were going crazy for. Starting with Neon Genesis Evangelion. It debuted on TV Tokyo in 1995 and was released on VHS in the U.S. and Europe in 1996. It went on to become one of the most well-known and controversial anime series of the 90s. Evangelion is a sci-fi mecha anime which is a genre that heavily focuses on robots and other machines like cyborgs, androids, and space stations. In this series set 15 years after a cataclysmic event in Tokyo 3, a teen boy is recruited by his dad to fight alien-like entities known as angels, while piloting a giant robot called Evangelion, or simply Ava. What set it apart from other mecha anime were the complex themes it tackled, everything from depression and suicide to existentialism and religion. But younger viewers could watch it too. You didn't have to understand the deeper, more complex messages within the show. You could simply enjoy it for the stunning animation and iconic music. The reason it was controversial, however, has to do with the ending of the original series. Ada Palmer says the studio that made Ava ran out of money. And the last two episodes didn't have enough animated budget to animate fully. So some of the sections are just line drawings or almost doodles or non-moving. Nonetheless, the makers of Ava were able to put together a powerful narrative. The last two episodes are a psychological portrait of what's happening in the mind of the core character during the final confrontation. The problem was what actually happened during that confrontation wasn't revealed. A lot of people got to the ending of Evangelion and then are like, what? What happened? It turned into just doodles and I didn't get the resolution that I thought would be there. Because it's such a complicated and subtle story that it expects you to sort of deduce what happened without ever telling you what happened. The lack of understanding required fans to turn to chat rooms and other viewers to try to make sense of the ending. So the ending of Ava doesn't tell you what happened in the ending of Ava which is a very unusual way to tell a story. And it requires a community to be there to talk through, you know, this was this, and did you see this hint? Did, did you screen cap this, this one moment? If you push pause, you can figure it out. 
uh, it requires a community there with you to make sense of. And that's really what was controversial. Fans were so outraged by the ending that they sent letters and even death threats to the series creator, Hideaki Anno, and his studio offices were vandalized. Eventually, a movie was released called The End of Evangelion, which provided an alternate ending for fans disappointed by the final two seasons. Released in 1997 in Japan, it also included live-action shots of some of those death threat letters Anno received. Since then, there have been four more Ava films as part of a reboot series called Rebuild of Evangelion. The most recent, Thrice Upon a Time, began streaming in March 2021 and is said to be the definitive ending of the Neon Genesis Evangelion saga that began in the 1990s. As I mentioned, Evangelion falls within the sci-fi mecha genre. There are, in fact, dozens of anime genres and subgenres represented in four different categories. Anime and manga, manga especially, tend to be separated into four categories. Shoujo for girls, shonen for boys, seinen for adult men, and josei for adult women. And those are the four sort of big markets. And the things for kids really means teens. You can think of it as a YA equivalent. Prior to the 90s, there was a long-held belief among U.S. distributors and TV stations that shoujo, anime for girls that featured female protagonists, would not draw a wide audience. But that all changed with the introduction of a clumsy, carefree middle school student with a penchant for crying, who finds out she is reincarnated from a powerful moon princess. Sailor Moon started as a serialized manga anthology that ran from 1991 to 1997. Written and illustrated by Naoko Takeuchi, the hugely popular comic was adapted into an anime series that began airing in Japan in 1992. A dubbed version premiered in North America in 1995, and with its cast of strong female characters, quickly became the first anime to be widely popular with girls. That's despite the attempts by Deke Entertainment to Americanize the show by removing some small and big things from the original content. For example, all of the characters' names were changed, including Sailor Moon, who went from Usagi to Serena. In addition, references to Japanese culture were removed, including kanji writing, which was edited out of the background of many scenes. Road shots were even flipped so that cars appeared to be driving on the right-hand side of the road like in North America. Near nudity in the Sailor Scout transformation sequences and the many bathtub scenes in the show were also censored through reanimation. For example, the water level in the bathtub was raised or made more opaque to avoid showing the girls' bodies. The dub avoided using the word death, and scenes that portrayed any violence were completely cut out, which kind of made sense since Sailor Moon was being advertised in North America as a kid's show on channels like the Cartoon Network. But what didn't make sense was the erasure of several queer characters, including two Sailor Scouts. In both the anime and the manga, it is very clear that Sailor Neptune and Sailor Uranus are in a romantic relationship. 
But in the U.S., their relationship was changed from being girlfriends to cousins. The American companies that air this made a lot of changes. And we hear about the erasure of same-sex couples and the presence of homosexuality, which is one of the things that they often changed. But they also often changed the setting and the location and the occupations of people. They removed both uh, lesbian couples and gay male couples, but they would also often remove things like extremely disparate ages in romances. Uh, it's not uncommon in anime, especially shoujo, for there to be a storyline in which a girl who's in high school ends up marrying the teacher. And this is not something that people are as comfortable with in U.S. media. After its release in the U.S., Sailor Moon quickly became a bona fide phenomenon. And a big reason for that was the timing of its release. In 1995, the internet was starting to become a hub for fandom, meaning viewers of Sailor Moon and other anime series could now use message boards to share their thoughts on the show. Plus, this was the era of girl power. So a show that focused on female friendships and empowerment was bound to be a hit. It's still cherished today by old and new viewers who now have a chance to watch the show as it was intended. That's because in 2014, Viz Media bought the rights to Sailor Moon and redubbed the entire series. The new version kept the original Japanese names of the characters, and this time none of the content previously deemed to be inappropriate was cut, including the violence, the blood, and queer characters. Also in 2014, a rebooted version of the series called Sailor Moon Crystal began airing with the final two feature-length installments set to debut in the summer of 2023. Over the years since its release in the 1990s, Sailor Moon set the bar for the magical girl genre and paved the way for similar shows like Cardcaptor Sakura and Pretty Cure. Plus, it's inspired countless video games and collectibles, including a collaboration with luxury shoe brand Jimmy Choo, making it one of Japan's most successful media franchises. Another popular Japanese media franchise that helped revolutionize anime in North America landed in the U.S. in 1996. You can destroy planets, but you can never destroy what I am, friend. Uh, you? What? What are you? Uh, I am the hope of the universe. Dragon Ball Z and its predecessor, Dragon Ball, are based on a manga series written and illustrated by Akira Toriyama. It follows the adventures of Goku and his friends as they battle against powerful enemies both on Earth and in space. Known for its iconic fight scenes, its memorable cast of characters, and its blend of action, humor, and drama, Dragon Ball Z remains one of the most popular and influential anime series of the 90s and beyond. But like Sailor Moon, the original English dub made for its North American debut was problematic. In this case, it created some major plot holes and contradictions, which Ada Palmer says was a fairly common issue. They would pay more attention to making sure that the script would be palatable for the network than they would to the script being accurate. And so in that phase in the 1990s when these scenes are being done to air on television, the dub script tends to be much less faithful than the subtitles would be. 
And that created an attitude of if you really care about the Japanese-ness and you really care about the original artist's intentions, you want the subtitled version. This was a pretty big issue for collectors at the time. If they were buying a VHS copy of an anime film or series, they would have to decide which version to purchase, subtitled or dubbed. With the advent of DVDs, which let you have both on one recording, that problem was solved. And Ada says dubs are now much different than they were in the 90s. As anime fandom grew, more and more seriousness went into making sure that the dub has a really good script. The dub will strive to be fluid and it has to match the number of spoken syllables that the mouth movement is. So sometimes it needs to add or take away words when something has more syllables in one language than does the other. But the dubs will work very hard to capture an authentic spirit because they know that their primary audience really care about this. In 1998, both Dragon Ball Z and Sailor Moon were added to Toonami, that weekday afternoon programming block on the Cartoon Network that I mentioned off the top. Toonami launched on March 17, 1997, and its initial focus was actually on action animation, with shows like Thundercats and The Real Adventures of Johnny Quest. But soon, the popularity of anime took over, thanks to the addition of Dragon Ball Z and Sailor Moon in 1998, plus many other classics, including Cowboy Bebop and Gundam Wing. Moltar from Space Ghost Coast to Coast was the inaugural host of Toonami, replaced in 1999 by a robot named Tom. In its prime viewing spot from 4 to 7 p.m., Toonami helped influence a generation of kids to fall in love with anime. Fox Kids also jumped on the anime trend when it began airing Digimon in 1999. Digimon actually began as a virtual pet made by Bandai, similar to a Tamagotchi, but designed to appeal more to boys. The toy was an instant hit when they arrived in North America at the beginning of 1998 and kids everywhere were caring for their digital monsters and training them for battle. Over the next year or so, more versions of the virtual pet were released, as well as a video game and a manga series. Then finally, in 1999, a Digimon anime series premiered on TV in North America in August of that year. The series follows the lives of seven kids, who are catapulted into a digital world while at summer camp, Using digital devices, they help the monsters they find evolve into more powerful creatures. By Christmas of 99, anything Digimon related became one of the hottest gifts for kids. Stores were full of Digimon action figures and collector cards, along with a slew of licensed products like coloring books, lunchboxes, and bedsheets. Digimon was big, but there was one monster it couldn't slay. I wanna be the very best. The Pokemon anime series was based on a pair of beloved Game Boy games, Pokemon Red and Green, that were released by Nintendo in 1996. The video games were followed by a hugely popular trading card game, as well as manga. And then in 1997, Japanese animation studio OLM was given the job of coming up with an animated series that would capitalize on the popularity of the pocket monsters that had taken over Japan. 
OLM decided the show would focus on a 10-year-old Pokemon trainer named Satoshi, who would be renamed Ash Ketchum in the English version. Satoshi was made in the image of his creator, Satoshi Tajira. A young outcast who as a boy living just outside Tokyo collected insects and other tiny creatures from fields, ponds, and the forest. Creators wanted Satoshi to have a sidekick, and at first considered a pink Pokemon named Clefairy. But during production, they realized the cute little creature skewed towards girls, and they wanted something that would appeal to both boys and girls. That's when they decided an electric yellow mouse named Pikachu would be a perfect companion for the show's lead character. Pikachu. Its name is Pikachu. Oh, it's so cute, it's the best of all. You'll see. Oh, hi, Pikachu! Together they go on adventures around the world, meeting new monsters, winning gym badges, and thwarting the efforts of Team Rocket. The show was an instant hit in Japan. But it actually almost derailed because of a bizarre incident shortly after the series began airing on TV Tokyo. During the climax of an episode titled Cyber Soldier Porygon, a pocket monster named Porygon causes an explosion that was animated with flashing lights that lasted about six seconds. The scene employed a commonly used animation technique known as Paka Paka, which broadcasts quick alternating red and blue flashing lights. In this case, there were about 12 flashes per second. As a result, at precisely 6.51 p.m. on December 16, 1997, 685 children watching the show experienced seizures and were sent to hospital. Over the next couple of days, another 12,000 children also reported symptoms of illness. The Japanese media began calling the incident Pokemon Shock, and the cartoon's producers were questioned by police, while government officials held an emergency meeting to figure out what happened. As a result, the share price of Nintendo even dropped by a little more than 3%. After a four-month hiatus, Pokemon was back on the air with a one-hour special, which began with an apology for the incident, but not an explanation. Experts were stumped about what actually happened and why. Today, however, it's believed that some of the kids experienced photosensitive epilepsy while the rest, who experienced symptoms over the next couple of days, were actually victims of a mass sociogenic illness, better known as mass hysteria. Either way, the episode never aired again in Japan or anywhere else in the world. Pokemon was introduced in the U.S. by the distribution and production company for Kids Entertainment in 1998, and it immediately became the number one children's show in syndication. Noticing its success in syndication, the WB bought the licensing rights and began showing it in February 99. It promptly became the most popular program in all of children's TV, with more than 5 million viewers an episode. With its rocking theme song, and with lovable characters like Ash's friends Brock, Misty, and Serena, Pokemon captured the hearts of kids and adults alike, creating die-hard fans of the franchise to this day. A cynic might say the Pokemon anime was just a vehicle to sell more video games, collector cards, and action figures. But fans of the show say it was much more than that. 
They say it taught them about growing up and that no matter how hard things get, everything will be okay in the end. But of course, there's no denying the anime was a driving force in the Pokemania that swept through North America, causing parents and teachers to freak out a little, especially when it came to those Pokemon collector cards. The trading cards, which were made by Seattle-based Wizards of the Coast under a license from Nintendo, were designed for kids ages 8 to preteen. But 5- and 6-year-olds were also going crazy for the cards. And that often led to problems on the playground. A principal at a school in New York told Associated Press in 1999 he banned trading between students because, quote, some of our younger kids were getting suckered out of their more valuable cards. And in some cases, Pokemon cards were leading to violence. In 2000, a 14-year-old boy in Quebec was stabbed when he tried to get back a $30 set of cards stolen from his little brother the day before. And in Philadelphia, two boys were arrested after they threw a trash can at an 11-year-old in a bathroom and then ran off with two Pokemon cards and 75 cents. Lots of schools ended up banning the cards altogether, no trading allowed, even at recess. As for parents, some were okay with Pokemon cards, saying at least they encourage kids to read, while others said it was just as bad as gambling and accused the card manufacturer of racketeering because they intentionally made some cards scarce, forcing children into buying more and more packs of Pokemon cards. Then in November 1999, Time Magazine even ran a front-page story warning parents to be wary of Pokemania. The article said the problem with Pokemon was that its key principle was all about greed. The more Pokemon you have, the greater power you possess. Illustrated by the franchise slogan, gotta catch them all. But the criticism didn't put a stop to Pokemania. In December 1999, Pokemon items were the best-selling gifts of the holidays. In the United States alone, 150 companies made more than 1,500 Pokemon products, including macaroni and cheese, ice cream, musical jewelry boxes, chewable vitamins, inflatable furniture, and sewing patterns. Pokemon total sales worldwide in 1999 alone were $7 billion. Pokemon's popularity has ebbed and flowed since then. Who can forget the Pokemon Go craze of 2016? And through it all, the anime series has continued pumping out new episodes. More than 1,200 episodes to date and over 20 films. Fans of the anime were shook in December 2022 when the Pokemon company announced that the series is moving on from Ash and Pikachu and beginning later this year will begin featuring two new protagonists, Liko and Roy. As for anime as a whole, Ada Palmer says the industry went through a rough patch between 2008 and 2013. And then it slowly recovered and we're now in another age in which a lot of great things are being produced. But if you ask you know, how many shows are airing in any given season that are exciting and doing something new, the answer is we're in a good patch right now. In 2019, the global anime market, including TV shows, movies, and merchandise, hit an all-time high of $24 billion. And that was before the pandemic, when people spent their entire time binge-watching kid-friendly fare like Pokemon and cyberpunk extravaganzas like Ghost in the Shell. 
In 2020, Sony Pictures Entertainment spent just over $1 billion to purchase the U.S. anime streaming service Crunchyroll, which is said to have the largest online library of new and catalog anime content, making it easier than ever for anime fans to find what they're looking for. A just reward for diehard anime watchers, because at the end of the day, the success of anime really comes down to those fans who have helped the art form become what it is today. Thanks for listening to this dive into the golden age of anime. This topic has been suggested by many listeners, including Jessica Gordon. And Pokemon specifically is something lots of people have asked for, including Reagan, who listens to the show with her mom. As always, thanks to everyone for sharing ideas. It's always appreciated, and I do love to hear from you. So if you can, reach out through social media. I'm on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That90sPodcast. You can also send me an email anytime at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. Also, special thanks to Ada Palmer. Her passion and knowledge about manga and anime is infectious. If you want to hear my full interview with Ada, head over to www.patreon.com slash history of the 90s, where subscribers always get access to uncut interviews. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 